Last week, a parishioner came up to me and said that a really good friend of his is no longer attending Mass. And when asked why, he said, look, I'm basically a good guy. I'm a good husband, I'm a good father, and that's good enough to get me into heaven. So the parishioner asked me, what should I say to him? Firstly, it's a good thing to keep this in mind. It's, is this really the reason the person is not going to Mass, or is it simply the presenting rationale, the acceptable explanation? Because you might really be dealing with something else, but you can't know that necessarily, at least not right away, and certainly not in through a third person such as this. So what would be my first response? First, it's really cool that you're dealing with a person who is somewhat of a believer. The conversation didn't start out with, I don't go to Mass because I don't believe in heaven or I don't believe in God. It was rather, I believe I know how to get into heaven without faith, without sacraments, without a faith community, etc. So at least that is good. It's a good grounding on which to begin. There's some semblance of a common ground on which to build. Then there are some interesting presuppositions that might be ferreted out. How do you defend this position that certainly is not historical? How do you have such a great assurance that it is true? Why do you think that you get to make this determination? It's a little bit like perhaps someone from Sweden deciding that they're going to become uh, a citizen of the United States and they're going to move here and they're going to be let in by their own rules. It might be countered that, but all these church practices are man-made rules. Well, touche, maybe, perhaps they are. But are you sure? How do you know? But let us assume for a moment that they are man-made rules. Did not Jesus not found a church? Did he not give the church authority in matters of faith and morals? And the church is not Rome. The church is all of us together. And how do you defend throwing things out that you don't like? Chesterton is quoted as saying, and I'm paraphrasing here, be careful when you tear down fences. One should be sure one knows why a fence is built in the first place before taking its destruction too lightly. I get it and I understand that God's ways and often man's laws don't always make a lot of sense, at least at first to us, especially at that first blush. Here's one great example. In Exodus, God tells the enslaved Hebrew people in Egypt that in order to avoid the 10th and final plague, the death of the firstborn male of every family, they had to procure a lamb, slaughter it, put its blood on their doorposts, and then eat that lamb. That's just weird. It's bizarre. And there's a lot of interesting reasons for this, but on the surface, isn't it just curiously creepy? And we hear this story blithely every year as we get close to Easter. 
But imagine that you're hearing it for the very first time. You're completely unaware of this type of history. You would probably sit there and go, oh, gross. It's probably an arrestable offense today. Still, here is what Dr. Scott Hahn, who will be speaking at St. Sebastian in April, has to say about that. Suppose one of the Hebrew slaves in Egypt just couldn't stomach lamb. Let's say he killed the lamb, as he was instructed, and sprinkled the blood, and then threw away the lamb chops in favor of steak. Or bake some lamb chop shaped cookies cookies and ate them instead. What would have happened? The Hebrew would have awakened the next morning to find his oldest son or brother dead. If your position is that we don't really have to follow any particular law in order to get into heaven, there is a heavy burden of proof that needs to be presented because even Jesus followed the religious dictates of his day. So how does one get into heaven? This is the big question, I suppose. At the end of your life, do you appear before the judgment seat? And there's St. Peter and Jesus, and they open up a big book, and they go through and review your entire life. And let's say you did five million really good things in your life, but you also did five million plus one bad things. Do you go to hell? Or is it that when you die, Jesus is there and he puts his arms around you and says, welcome, everything is cool. I know you didn't really practice your faith, but otherwise you were a good husband, you were a good father, you were a good worker, etc. Which is correct? Well, for the Catholic, neither. Both have tinges of the heresy of Pelagianism about them. The idea that in some way we can earn heaven. As though this whole thing is a matter of commerce. I do this amount of good things and then God must let me in. I put a quarter in the vending machine and I press the buttons, I get my Heath bar. This is the way the Catholic Church has understood how to get into heaven for 2,000 plus years. Covenant. Covenant. A solemn oath promising future action. Like wedding vows. I promise to love you in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health, all the days of my life. So it's just crazy cool that from Genesis all the way to Revelation, God talks about his covenant with his people and, he, and it's best symbolized in all of scripture by the marriage covenant. We, me, you, all of us, individually and collectively are the bride. God is the groom. It's all about a deep, and binding relationship. Think about all the formal names of God and even the way that we refer to each other. They are all relational focused in nature. Father, son, brothers and sisters, son of man, son of God. 
So let's say a man is in a covenantal marriage with his wife. He has some duties which are expected of him. Maybe to be responsible to earn a living, be an attentive parent to his children, pay bills, be a good son, be a good son-in-law, be a good citizen, keep up his portion of the house. And as good as all these things are, no matter how phenomenal he may be at them, none of them make him a good husband. What makes him a good husband is that he first loves his wife. He spends time with her, pays attention to her, shares life with her. There was a plaque that used to hang in my parents' bedroom that said, the greatest gift that a father can give to his children is that he loves their mother. That's what makes a great husband. All those other things being necessary and good, but they're all secondary. In our nuptial relationship with God, there are a lot of good things that we need to do. Fulfill your relationship roles and obligations. Be a good citizen. Spread the good news. Take care of the needy. Be polite. Visit the sick. But as good as all those things are and necessary, no matter how phenomenal a person might be at them, they do not win you heaven. Father Jacques Philippe, who will be speaking at our parish next month, explains that sainthood, one of only two options, mind you, is not about being perfect. Saints are not perfect people. They had faults. Most saints you probably couldn't stand to live with. But what made them saints is that they could not bear the thought of living and facing the world without that loving nuptial relationship with God. And it's no mystery what that means. You know what that means, at least in theory, how to be in good relationship with another person. Time, communication, presence, aligning interests, sharing, repairing, fulfilling obligations. It is, po is it possible to have a successful marriage with someone based on 50 minutes of begrudged time on the weekend? to live never seeking forgiveness with each other, to not seek out their authentic presence and spend time with them. For is not being with the person that you love better than text messaging or video conferencing? So apply that same thing with a relationship with a divine person, the greatest law being love. And there is the beginning of what a relationship with God is what opens the doors to heaven. And then we come to know, as we pray together today, in today's psalm, one thing I ask of the Lord, this I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I might gaze lovingly on the Lord.